Okay. Hey, welcome to Grace Bible Church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them at this point in time. And uh, turn with me to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Uh, if you don't have your own uh, Bibles, there should be some Bibles in the pew backs in front of you. Uh, Isaiah is one of the big prophets. It's kind of right in the middle of your Bible or a little bit to the left of the center of your Bible. Uh, we'll be in three texts in the book of Isaiah and uh, one in the book of Psalms. So that's where we're going. Uh, we'll flip around a little bit. If you don't have access to uh, either of those, the text should be up on the screen. Uh, particularly, turn to Isaiah 53. That's re- really where I want you to be this morning. Isaiah 53. We'll see one, one verse from that chapter on the screen, uh, and then we'll look at the rest of it in our Bible. So Isaiah 53. Uh, indeed, the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was long expected. And uh, one of the reasons I like that video in particular was because it demonstrates how uh, this was God's plan all, of, all along. Uh, from the very beginning of, the, of, of creation, from the fall, uh, to all of the promises to the patriarchs that uh, God had promised a Savior, uh, someone to come and fix this mess that we find ourselves and found ourselves in. And uh, so that's uh, pertinent because this morning uh, we're going to look at some more names of Jesus. We've been in a sermon series called Baby Names, and we've been ex- exploring some of the names and titles given uh, to this infant Jesus. Uh, and this morning we're going to look at some of the Old Testament names uh, given to Christ. Of course, they're prophetic. That is, they speak to Jesus Christ and what he's going to do in his ministry and his life uh, ahead of time. They speak uh, full words, and then the rest of the New Testament and history demonstrate how those prophecies came to be. So Isaiah 53, I trust that you're there. Let's pray one more time, and then we'll jump right in. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you that we can gather here. Thank you, as it has been mentioned already, uh, for the beautiful winter snow that we've uh, enjoyed. Uh, We're reminded of your goodness, of your grace to us, and uh, as Dan pointed out, uh, that indeed you say that you will make and can make our sins as white as snow, though they be scarlet red, you can cover them with uh, the red blood of your son, Jesus Christ, of this infant uh, born some 2,000 plus years ago in, a, in, a, in an obscure town to, uh, to a, a teenage uh, a virgin girl. And he grew up to become a man and he grew up to change the entire course of history and to change our hearts because he was no mere man. But he was Emmanuel, God with us. He was the God-man, our Savior, our King, our Lord, and everything else that we've been looking at. So Jesus, would you be honored this morning, in particular as we look into the, the word uh, that speaks of you ahead of time, that foretells who you would be and what you would do in your birth, what you would do in your death, what you would accomplish in your resurrection, and what you will accomplish in your return. Uh, We thank you for these prophecies. Thank you that they're trustworthy and true, historically verifiable and accurate, and that we can place our faith not in a myth, but in something that is real and trustworthy. And so we pray that you would grow us in your grace, that we would come to love your son more fully, that we would come to appreciate his ministry to us, both in the past and and in the present now and and yet in the future, more fully, and that we would would rejoice uh, in who he is and all that he's done. And it's in that name, the name of Jesus, <clears throat> that we pray it and all of God's people said. Amen. So as I said, we have been looking at some of the names of Jesus, uh, both from the Old and New Testament. This morning we're going to focus a little bit on the Old Testament names of Jesus. Uh, but one of the things that I have been thinking about as I've been working through this whole list of names 
uh, and there are many names of Jesus in the Bible. Uh, something that struck me is just the oddity of them. Uh, a lot of the titles and the names that were ascribed to Jesus were just a little bit odd. They're just a little bit different. Uh, they're not like typical names that, uh, that we come across. And, and some of them maybe even strike us as funny. And so I began to, to think about funny names, you know, odd-sounding names of, of real people today. And so I began to research, and uh, I came across several uh, people and photographs of, of names that we uh, kind of think might be kind of odd or, or peculiar. So I want to share uh, with you some of these names, because the names of Jesus found in the Old Testament are going to be a little bit odd as well. So let's start with this one. Uh, if you like superheroes, this one might appeal to you. Uh, this young man's name from Singapore, his first name is called well, I don't know if it's first or last, but Batman, how about that? Batman been what? Superman, right? So apparently his uh, parents were superhero uh, fans. What about the next one? Uh, I like this one. Uh, this guy is uh, Oliver what? Loser. Oh boy, that's, you know, there's nothing he can do about that, right? That's his last name. Oliver is a good name. What about this one? <laughs> now, I wonder if that's real or if he actually changed it to that because maybe he's a big fan. I don't know, but... Uh, uh, there you go. Uh, no explanation. I like this one. Uh, your community realtor. So if you're wanting to buy a house, would you go to this lady, Wendy Wacko? <laughs> uh, I don't know if I would go to Wendy Wacko to help me buy a new house. If you'll notice, this is a dentist, right? I don't know if you see that. But this is a dentist office. And uh, would you take your kids or go to a, a dentist who's named Dr. Dr. Dooms? Uh, I don't know about that, but uh, you might be doomed if you take your doctor. How about this one? Any uh, Star Wars fans? Knight, his name is Jed, and his middle na- initial is I, and that says what? Jedi Knight. Awesome if you love Star Wars. If you, if you hate it, then that poor child, right? Uh, this is my favorite one. Chiropractor, Dr. what? Will Tickle. <laughs> so if you have uh, any chiropractor needs and uh, you want to get a good tickling to, then you might want to go to Dr. Will Tickle. Uh, I think that's the last one. Uh, so, you know, funny names uh, abound, and uh, this morning we're going to see a few other kind of odd names as we look at some of the names of Jesus in the Old Testament. But just because they're odd doesn't mean they're insignificant. Uh, just because they may seem a little off to us uh, doesn't mean that they are uh, without meaning or purpose uh, for us. So what we're going to see this morning, there are lots of names of Jesus in the Old Testament. We're really going to focus on four four names or four sets of names, and each of these names are prophetic. That is, they speak to what Jesus will or has done, and each of them correlates to kind of four areas of his ministry. So the first name we'll look at talks about his birth. The second name we'll look at talks about his death. The third name of the Old Testament talks about his resurrection, and the fourth name speaks to his Return. So let's begin with, uh, with the birth of Jesus. Uh, this name, uh, that's probably common to most of us. We may have heard uh, this scripture before if we've been in church a while. And it's the name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, and that's found in Isaiah chapter 7. So if you're in Isaiah 53, you can turn there if you want, or you can look on the screen. But Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we see uh, this first name of Jesus that speaks of his birth. Very appropriate for the Christmas time. This is what Isaiah says, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And this is what that sign will be. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. So let's take a look at this prophecy. It's basically in two parts. Uh, First of all, the Lord says, I'm going to give you a sign. This is going to be an indication. It's significant, right? And the first 
part speaks to something that is utterly supernatural. Uh, it's, it's something that has never happened before in human history, and I would uh, venture to say will never happen again. And that is that someone, there will be a, a son who is going to be born from uh, the womb of a mother who is a virgin. The virgin will conceive. How does that happen? That's supernatural. That's a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence. But the prophet of old foretold of a time when this event would take place. And we see the Gospels bear out that this is exactly what happened with the birth of Jesus. His mother, whose name, of course, was Mary, was a virgin. And she conceived and she gave birth to a son. This first part, the virgin birth, uh, historically has been criticized, uh, understandably so. For those, of, uh, 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 for those people outside of the faith, for those who are unbelievers, they, they see this and they think, how can that happen? This, this, is, you know, this isn't in the scientific method. It's, it's, without something, it's not repeatable. We can't test that it happened. And so it's historically been scoffed at by unbelievers. However, uh, I don't know if you've been reading your uh, devotionals that we've provided for you uh, through DTS. It's not too late. They're back there. Uh, But Dr. Mark Hitchcock, uh, adjunct professor at DTS, shares a really significant and interesting story uh, about one young lady's uh, scoffing at the virgin birth and how a doctor by the name of Dr. Walter Wilson responded to her. And I think it's a wonderful response. I'll read what he writes. Dr. Walter Wilson, a a physician and Bible teacher in Kansas City, had just examined a young university student and felt constrained, compelled to share Jesus with her before she left his office. Well, she refused the gospel, sharing that, in her opinion, no educated person could ever accept the Bible. She said, quote, Tell me, Dr. Wilson, do you believe in the virgin birth? Indeed, I do, he replied. Very well, she continued. Now let me ask you two further questions. Let's suppose that you uh, tell me upon your examination that it has been revealed that I'm pregnant. But I respond by saying that this can't be since I'm a virgin. However, I later give birth to a baby boy. Here are are my two questions, she says. First, would you believe that I was truthful concerning my virginity? And second, would you look upon my baby as the son of God? Good questions, right? Breathing a silent prayer for divine wisdom, Dr. Wilson answered in this way. Well, it would all depend on certain things, the doctor said. Let's first of all imagine that I was present at his birth, and I watched in amazement as farmers from the area came and they worshipped him, followed by the arrival of some foreign astronomers bringing him some costly and majestic gifts. Now, then when he's 12 years old, I I see him holding his own with America's greatest theologians and America's greatest philosophers. Years later, I follow him as he empties hospitals by healing the sick. He disrupts cemeteries by raising the dead. He reduces prison populations by changing lives, and he reconciles enemies by his message. Finally, if I could look in horror at this incredible man as he was murdered by his foes. In a great sorrow, officially, I pronounced him dead. But then, miracle of miracles, actually, I saw him walking around several days later. Later, Then, yes, then yes, I would say you are a virgin. And yes, your baby would be the Son of God. What a wonderful response. You know, uh, uh, not only do those who are kind of outside of the faith scoff at this doctrine, this 
virgin birth. Unfortunately, there has kind of been a rash of those who are so-called Christians, leaders and preachers, theologians and uh, authors that uh, call into question not necessarily the historicity of the virgin birth, but the significance of of it. They begin to question whether it's really whether it really matters to the person of Christ if he was indeed virgin uh, born in his book Velvet Elvis which you may have read it's several years old at this point uh, former pastor and current author uh, Rob Bell uh, he writes these words and I'd like to uh, to quote him on on this he writes this what if tomorrow what if tomorrow someone digs up definitive proof that Jesus has a real earthly biological father named Larry. An archaeologist finds, uh, they find Larry's tomb and they do a DNA sample and they prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the virgin birth, well, it was really just a bit of mythologizing. The gospel writers just kind of threw it in to appeal to the followers of, of, of the goddess, uh, gods of Mithra and Dionysian uh, cults that at that time were hugely popular and they uh, believed that their god actually had a virgin birth. He continues, I affirm the historic Christian faith, which includes the virgin birth and the Trinity and the inspiration of the Bible and much more, but notice this, but if the whole faith falls apart when we re-examine and rethink one spring, using an illustration of doctrine as a trampoline with multiple springs, then it it wasn't that strong in the first place, was it? Uh, this This is sad because uh, what we see here in Isaiah and in the New Testament is that the the doctrine of the virgin birth uh, is utterly significant to the person of Christ. It's utterly significant. So why does Isaiah say that this prophecy of the virgin birth is important? Well, let's look at the second half of the verse. He says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. Why does it matter? that Jesus had to be virgin born and will call him, so this is Jesus' name, Emmanuel. What does that mean, church? Do you know what it means? It means what? God God with us, right? It means God is with us. So let me ask you a question. It's not rocket science. What does Isaiah say is the significance of the virgin birth? There will be a virgin, she will give birth, and because that virgin gave birth, there will be a uniting of divinity and humanity, and we can call this baby boy what? God, <laughs> right? God with us. So I'm sorry, Rob Bell. It's utterly significant. It's without compromise. It matters. It matters. So if we lose the virgin birth, we lose the God part of God with us. So I want to ask you just a, a real question. It's significant. Is this something that you believe is it something that you not just mentally assent to, but you, you believe that is historically accurate, that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin uniting divinity and humanity? Do you believe that this miracle of miracles, that God can do this? And because of that, he wasn't just man with us. He was God with us. He came to us to be one of us, to save us. If you, if you, if you reject the virgin birth, then you lose Christianity. If you reject the virgin birth, then you lose that which is an utterly significant building block in our faith. So church, do you rejoice in this miracle of miracles that God came to be with us in the person of Jesus? So this this first name, Emmanuel, speaks of of, of his birth. But what else does it say? What else does the Old Testament reveal as we look at the names of Jesus? Well, flip back now to Isaiah 53. Maybe you're there already. Turn with me, if you are, to Isaiah 53. Because the names of Jesus not only prophesy of his birth, but it actually speaks of his death. 
So it moves from the birth of the Christ child to the death of the Christ child. In Isaiah 53, we get what is an amazing, a spectacular prophecy of the death of Jesus and not only his death, but what it would accomplish. The prophet of old spoke of the death of Jesus in our place for our sins and what his death would accomplish. And so the name is a shoot. Now that's kind of an odd title, right? If I say, what's your name? Shoot. Well, okay, what are you upset about? No, no, a shoot, right? It's, it's a picture. Well, well, we'll see in a minute. Isaiah 53, verse 2. Jesus is pictured as a shoot or a small plant. So get this image in your mind. A small plant growing out of dry ground. Uh, in, back in Isaiah chapter 11, it's a, it's a plant growing out of a tree stump. But either way, it's a picture of a small plant growing out of the ground. In chapter two, uh, verse 2 of chapter 53, the prophecy begins this way. Speaking of Jesus, growing up before God the Father, he grew up before him, speaking of Jesus, like a tender shoot, right? A tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. So here, Jesus is pictured as kind of a puny plant growing up out of a dry and arid ground. Um, So I've spoke of this before, so I won't belittle it, uh, but this year we uh, actually did a a garden. So this was our first year to be gardeners. We put on our green thumbs, or we wanted to find out if it was green. It's not very green, okay? Uh, We don't really have green thumbs. We we tried our our best at it, and as I I went to examine uh, if our, our plants were producing any fruit, uh, I think of this, this image, this shoot, uh, this root out of dry ground, because we didn't water very well, and I go and I look at the plant, and it was just a puny little thing coming out of parched ground, and I think, I should water that, or, you know, I really need to tend better to this. It was just a little thing growing out of the ground. Uh, that's kind of how uh, this picture of Jesus is, right? Uh, it relates back to Isaiah chapter 11. You don't have to turn there, uh, but in Isaiah chapter 11, Jesus is called, and I quote, a shoot from the stump of Jesse. In other words, a shoot growing out from the tree branch of Jesse. So who's Jesse? Well, Jesse is King David's daddy, right? Jesse is King David's father. Why is this significant? Why does this matter? Well, I'll tell you why it matters. Because there was a promise that God gave to David that there would be the the possibility of a king of kings in the land of Israel coming from his line, and that ultimately there would be one who would be the king from his line. And so here, Jesus is called this stump, this root from the lineage of Jesse. There would be a king. And so we think of a puny plant, but this puny plant is actually from Isaiah chapter 11. He's going to be the king of Israel. So think kingly images here, right? So jumping back into Isaiah 53, how does Isaiah uh, picture Isaiah, uh, the, the death of this king? How does he picture this king? Well, we think of rule, and we think of power, and we think of authority. But amazingly, the picture of this king in Isaiah 53 is is not what I think most people would expect because it describes not the conquest of the king, but it describes his death. It describes his death for his own subjects. Just keep that in mind. We sang this song, how many kings, right, would do this? How many kings would give up their thrones? That's the picture of Isaiah 53, of a king ruling over a kingdom and dying so that his subjects would live. So let's read this. It's an amazing prophecy. Look in your Bibles. It's not going to be on the screen, but Isaiah 53, uh, let's just read it in its entirety. Verse, uh, the end of verse 2, he had no beauty. Just think of the images of Christ here. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So he wasn't like 
handsome, and everybody wasn't gawking over him, right? He was just a normal-looking dude. Verse 3, he was despised and he was rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised. We held him in low esteem. That is, people looked at him in his death and said, I don't want to look at that, right? Verse 4, surely, what did he accomplish in his death? Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by God, and afflicted. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our what? Transgressions. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds... We are healed. Verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We could keep reading. But in Isaiah 53, we see a picture of the death of Christ. And his death was a substitutionary death. It was for our sins. It was bearing our iniquities. He, as our rightful king and Lord, stooped down to take the punishment and the the, the wrath of God that we deserved as our king. It's spectacular. I want to show just a quick clip now. A couple, really, but we'll start with this first one. It's uh, from the movie uh, uh, based on C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the, and the Wardrobe. Maybe you've read the books or watched the movies. Uh, the scene that I want to show you here is a picture of the substitutionary death of Jesus. There's a lion, and he's the king, the true king of this country, this land, which is called Narnia, of course, and his name is Aslan. And rightly so, he's pictured as a lion, the king of the jungle, but also we see Jesus is called the lion from the tribe of Judah. This lion is the Christ figure for C.S. Lewis. And what we see in this scene is that he, uh, as king, voluntarily chooses to die in the place of one of his subjects. The young boy's name is Edmund, For the sake of justice, if you remember in the book or in the movie, Edmund kind of rebels against him. He goes and he uh, is entertained by the the wicked queen, who's, I think, a portrait of, of, of Satan. And he rebels against the king. And he joins the queen, so to speak. But his king, Aslan, takes his place and dies in his stead. So let's watch this clip, if it's ready.
disappointed in you. Did you honestly think by all this that you could save the human traitor? You are giving me your life and saving no one. <laughs> so much for love. scene, very similar to that which we see in the Gospels. So Aslan the lion dies for his subject, Edmund, who is a rebel, who has rejected his rule in a sense. And it's a, it's a great picture because like Edmund, the Bible says that all of us have rebelled against God. We've all incurred his justice and deserve his wrath and have incurred his judgment, both physical and spiritual death. In a sense, we all are Edmund. We all are Edmund. And the good news is that Jesus is our Aslan. He is the one who takes our death, who takes our sins, who bears uh, our, uh, God's justice and his wrath in our place. And I'm convinced that much like uh, the, the witch in this scene, uh, that after, uh, at the death of our Lord Jesus, that Satan was convinced that he had won. And yet we all know that there is more to the story. And so we move from the death of Christ to his resurrection. Because the Old Testament not only speaks of the death of the Messiah in our place, it speaks of his overcoming death for us. He is called the Holy One in Psalm 16.10. You can turn there if you'd like, or you can look on the screen. In Psalm 16.10, we see Jesus uh, as the one who has overcome death. It reads this way, verse 10 of Psalm 16. David says this, the original author, he says, For you will not abandon my, sh- my soul to Sheol, that is the place of the dead. You won't abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One, there's the word, referring to himself initially, your Holy One to undergo decay. Now what is David saying? In this scene, he's simply saying, God, people are after me, but I trust in you and I trust that you're not going to let me die. But what we see is that this prophetically speaks to Christ. 
in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 13, both Paul and Peter speaking on this verse says this ultimately applies to Jesus. This ultimately speaks of Jesus, that God the Father would not abandon his soul or leave him in the state of death, but would allow him to be raised from the dead and applies it to the resurrection of Jesus in our place. So I want to see the, the next clip as it portrays, uh, I think, the, the resurrection of Jesus because he died for Edmund. So let's take a look at this scene now. We should go. interpreted the deep magic differently. That when a willing victim who has committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's stead, the stone table will crack, and even death itself would turn backwards. We sent the news that you were dead. Peter and Edmund will have gone to war. We have to help them. We will, dear one, but not alone. Climb on my back. We have far to go, and little time to get there. You may want to cover your ears. Even so, Jesus is our Holy One. He is the sinless one. Without sin, without any error, He died in our place and Jesus was raised from the dead. Again, I want to ask you, is that something you believe about this child that we celebrate at Christmas time? Do you believe that not only He died in our place for our sins, but that He rose from the dead? to give us and offer us not just new life here on earth, but eternal life forever with him as a new creature. Jesus accomplished this as the Holy One. Finally, the uh, last set of names, it's more than one name. The last set of names we're going to look at in the Old Testament refer to the second coming of Christ. We've looked at his birth, his death, his resurrection for our sins, and these last set of four names speak of his return. That is not the first advent, but his, his second advent. And again, it may be a, a familiar passage. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. You can turn there. We'll end there. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. We see uh, four sets of names uh, that oftentimes are applied to the person of Christ, but really speak to his second coming. 
So let's read Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. The prophet says, For unto us a child is born, that is his first incarnation. Unto us a son is given, and this is what he's going to accomplish in his second advent. And the government will, will be on his shoulders, and he will be called. So here are the four names, right? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of what? Prince of Peace, right? Verse 7, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne. There's the reference to the lineage of David. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So here Isaiah looks forward uh, to the second coming of Jesus and speaks of the coming of the king. I want us to see a couple things. First of all, notice the nature of this kingdom. So we, th- we live un- in a democracy, right? And we're blessed to do so. Uh, other parts of the world uh, have other types of governments. But the type of government that we see here is a, is a monarchy, right? It's a monarchy. It's, it's, a, it's a prediction, and it will come true when Jesus comes back to this earth. He will establish his kingdom. He will establish his kingdom, and he will be king. What will be the nature of that kingdom? Notice a few things from this text. Quote, it says, the government will be on his shoulders. What does that mean? That the government will rest on the shoulders of Jesus. Well, when, when we say to an athlete, uh, the coach may say, hey, you, the game is on your shoulders. What does that mean to you? Well, it means that that athlete will shoulder the responsibility for success or failure, right? The game is on your shoulders, this passage says that the government will be on Jesus' his shoulders. He, he will be responsible for ruling over the entire world. Notice this. He says, of, uh, of, of this kind of peace, there will be no end. Peace to no end. So uh, oftentimes during this Christmas season, right, we, uh, we talk about ideal. We, we talk about what we want the world to be. Uh, uh, if, if you're watching... Not to poke fun, but if you're watching a, maybe a beauty pageant and the question asks, oh, what, what's your Christmas desire? What's your Christmas wish? What does everybody say, right? World peace, peace on earth, right? World peace, peace on earth. Uh, and that's a good thing. We all want that, right? What would it be like to live in a world without war, without conflict, without injustice, without brutality, right? Without murder, without corrupt government. What would it be like? In our minds, this is the ideal, but this is the description of the government when Jesus comes. No wars, no conflicts, no strife, peace to whom there would be no end. Number three, he will establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness. Think about that kind of a government where there is perfect justice and perfect righteousness. No crime is ever unpunished. No one is ever taken advantage of. There's absolutely no injustice. So let me ask you that, a quick quick question. Is that the kind of government that you like to be un- under? Is that, is that the kind of government, kind of rule that you would like to be under? It is for me. That's the kind of rule, that's the kind of government that we all long for. But what's it going to take to get there? Well, it's going to take not just the nature of this kind of kingdom, but the nature of a particular kind of king. In other words, it's going to take Jesus to do that. So let's look at these four names rather quickly. Number one, he's called Wonderful Counselor. That is, he will be the kind of king that never makes a bad decision. He never does what is wrong or bad for his people. He's a wonderful counselor. He always gives good advice. He will rule over his kingdom and never make a bad decision. Now, whether you're left or right politically in this country, we all think the president 
whoever party he's in, oh, they make bad decisions. And we think of our governors, oh, I wish they would make better decisions. And we think of rulers around the world. We wish that they would just make better decisions, right? Jesus will make perfect decisions in his kingdom. He will be a wonderful counselor. Number two, he will be mighty God. That is, as God, he will have the power not just to make those decisions, but actually execute those decisions, right? To bring about peace and righteousness and justice. He has the power to do it because he's God. Third, eternal father. That doesn't make him God the father. It's a picture of the kind of rule that he will have in his kingdom. That is, his rule will be like a father's rule over his children. So I want you to think about that, the kind of rule that fathers establish over their children. Uh, I had a wonderful father growing up, and it was wonderful to be uh, in his kingdom, so to speak, our little family, right? And, and I hope that my kids will say that of me, that I was a wonderful dad, that I, I governed and, and ruled and led the family well. Uh, an old youth pastor of mine would always say this to his kids. He would say, you know what? This isn't a a democracy, speaking of his kids and his family. He says, this is not a democracy. It's a benevolent dictatorship. What did he mean by that when he said that to his kids? Well, first of all, he's saying, I'm in charge, (laughs) right? So get that. I'm in charge. But what kind of dictator is he? It's a benevolent dictatorship, right? That's the kind of rule that Jesus will have. He will indeed uh, be the king, but it will be a benevolent rule, like a father over his children. Number four, he is called the Prince of Peace. We love this, right? The, the, the Prince of Peace. Who can bring about everlasting peace? Only the Prince of Peace, right? Endless wars. He will usher in prosperity and holiness, and everything will be as it should be. Everything that God intends for humanity will occur. What a wonderful kingdom. What a wonderful king. I would like to close with a story again from the little devotional from DTS that we've offered to you. One of the, pro- the professors there, Dr. Abraham Curavilla, he writes uh, an interest- about an interesting thing that happened about a year ago this time in the town of Bethlehem. I don't know if you heard about this, but uh, he will describe it to you in his little piece, but there was a, a little bit of a melee, a little bit of a brawl in Bethlehem. So he, he writes, uh, the ancient uh, prophet declared that Jesus was the Prince of Peace. We just read that, Isaiah chapter 9. Jesus might have come to bring peace, but it wasn't evident in Bethlehem last time at this year. Uh, Reuters, which is a news organization, reported about a brawl that happened in the city's Church of the Nativity, apparently built over the traditional site of the birth of Jesus. So just think about that. A church built over the traditional site of the birth of Jesus, and what happens? There's a fight. Nope, it wasn't between Palestinians and Jews or Cowboys and Redskins fans, and we all know who will win that. Cowboys, of course. It wasn't between Democrats or Republicans or between Mac or PC devotees. Nope, none of these famous rivalries was in evidence in Bethlehem last Christmas. He writes, none of these potentially divisive factions caused the aforementioned fracas. So it did. The melee was between two groups of Christians, the Armenians, to be particular, and the Greek Orthodox. In fact, it was between Armenian and Greek Orthodox priests and monks. So church leaders fighting in Bethlehem. Leaders of the two sides, representatives of Christ, battling in Bethlehem. Dozens of clergymen feuded with brooms, employing them as swords and spears as they traded accusations about one-sided encroachment on the other's domain within the church premises. 
He writes, The Church of the Nativity you see is shared by various Christian denominations. And last year's squabble over sacred space was over who should clean what area of that sacred church. Because a privilege of cleaning was essentially akin to ownership of that area. Hence the implements of warfare. Brooms. <laughs> he, uh, he concludes by saying this, Palestinian security forces had to intervene to break up the skirmish. Thankfully, no one was injured and nothing was damaged. Uh, you know, this is a sad and somewhat comical reminder that uh, in this present age, under the first advent of Christ, even amongst Christians and Christ followers, uh, uh, there is conflict. And even the followers of the Prince of Peace can be hostile from time to time. But this last prediction in Isaiah 9 tells us that there will be a day There will be a day when Jesus returns, and of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. Let's pray. Father, we are anxious for this day when you send your son to establish this kingdom. He will be the prince of peace. He will establish peace on earth like every longing heart desires. He will be everlasting father and will rule over all the world as a benevolent father. He will be mighty God. He will have the power and the authority to rule in this kingdom, and he will be a wonderful counselor. He will make wise and good and great decisions. Father, I'm grateful that you show us in the Old Testament of this coming Savior. Thank you that he is Emmanuel, virgin-born. Thank you that he is the shoot. He is the, the stump of Jesse. He is the great king from the line of Jesse who dies for his subjects, who dies for our sins because we were rebellious towards you we hated you, and yet he came and bore our sins on the tree so that we, because of his resurrection as the Holy One, might have a new life in this world as new people and eternal life with you. Thank you, Jesus, that you will come back as the wonderful counselor, as the mighty God, as the eternal Father, and as the Prince of Peace. And under your reign and of your government and your peace, there will be no end. And so we say with the early church and with the Apostle Paul that we uh, declare and ask that, Lord Jesus, that you would come quickly. It is your rule and your reign we desire, both now and forever. And it's in the name of Jesus that all of God's people said, amen, amen. Thanks for coming.